Well, if you don't have uh, already, you might like to uh, open up uh, page 1086 in our church Bibles as we continue our series in the I Am Statements of Jesus. Did you spot it? Did you spot them? There is more than one this morning. We're going to actually add three additional I am sayings this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we know you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly, day by day. Amen. Uh, a question to uh, get you thinking, how would we react if Jesus entered our church this morning? How would we react if Jesus entered our church this morning? Well, our reading is, I think, a bit like a scene from a superhero movie. It's part of the Holy Week story, the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion that is not often mentioned. And there is a detail here that John alone records. And it is the final I am saying in the Gospel. We're not quite at the end of the series. Come back next week. But it's the last in his Gospel. Our setting is what John calls in verse 1 an olive grove, Matthew and Mark give it its name, Gethsemane, which literally means an oil press. So it would be an olive grove with an oil press in it, Gethsemane. It's located on a slope on the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It was on the sort of two-mile route that Jesus travelled each day from Jerusalem to the nearby village of Bethany where he was staying. So we might kind of think, sort of distant stains to Laylam, uh, but much hillier. And uh, there is still a garden uh, with olive trees uh, there today. Some of you may have visited. I was there uh, this summer with Simon and Wendy Williams. It's still there, and you can kind of look up at the Temple Mount. Well, I want to begin by setting the scene and uh, exploring the motivations for uh, a couple of the characters. First I want to ask, why did Jesus go to Gethsemane, to this olive grove? Verse 2 we read, Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Well, it provided a uh, quiet spot. Sorry, just say there is a vestry at the front. Do feel free to use it if you'd like. Why did he go there? Because it provided a quiet spot of escape in a bustling city. Like all Orthodox Jews of his day, Jesus travelled to Jerusalem at least three times a year for the pilgrimage festivals of Peshach, Shavuot and Sukkot. But we more commonly know them as Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles. And for each of these, Jerusalem was absolutely packed. Josephus, uh, a writer at the time, reckons up to two and a half million pilgrims turned up for the biggest 
of the three festivals, Passover. So people would be camping out in every available spot. You need to be thinking Glastonbury Festival, if you've ever been or seen it on, uh, on television, but on a city-wide scale. Here, it's the Passover festival. Earlier in the evening, Jesus has eaten the Passover meal as his last supper in an upper room in the city. Now he's heading back to the accommodation in Bethany, but he wants to pray. So they turn into this small, walled garden. I reckon it's just a little bit smaller than the size of the playground over at the school. Perhaps he was owned by a friend or supporter who makes it available just for them. We don't know. Now, one of the 12 apostles wasn't with them earlier in the evening. Judas had left the Last Supper early. Only Jesus knew the reason. It was to, to betray him to the authorities. So again, by way of introduction, again, another question. Why did the authorities want Judas to take them to Gethsemane? Uh, as Jesus points out in Matthew's Gospel, they had plenty of opportunities to arrest him. He says in Matthew 26, Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. So he wasn't hard to find. Indeed, he was very much the focus of attention and in the public eye every day during the week-long festival. But there was a problem. Jesus was very popular. And the atmosphere at Passover was pretty intense and volatile, heightened with religious fervour. So again, if we turn to Matthew uh, 21, beginning of Holy Week, the Jewish leadership looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. And their particular fear was, Matthew 28, they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly, and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So they want to limit the risks. And so Judas's inside information is very welcome because it gives them an opportunity to arrest Jesus out of the public gaze in a secluded spot at night. But even with all these precautions, they are still taking no chances. Do you see it there, verse 3? Uh, they send a detachment of soldiers. The word here is a Roman cohort. That could be up to 1,000 men. <laughs> it may well have been some hundreds. Because at Passover, the Romans sent loads of extra troops up to Jerusalem from, uh, from Caesarea, uh, their capital. Uh, Matthew 28, describing uh, this same scene, calls it a large crowd. Again, very similar today. If you go to, uh, to Jerusalem uh, around Easter, the city is packed with visitors who've kind of come in and there are hundreds of soldiers everywhere to keep a kind of tight lid on the security. Well, anyway, that's all by way, really, of background. That's setting the scene. Hope it was of some interest. Now the action begins, and not only is it incredibly dramatic, 
but I hope we're going to see it is full of significant and powerful truths for us about the confidence we can have in and through the challenges of life. There are three things I want to highlight. The opposition Jesus faced, the control Jesus had, and the compassion Jesus showed. And in each case, uh, I want to highlight how I think this has a, a really profound implication uh, for us this morning. And if you've been to one of these in the series before, you will know I will be turning to a, a wonderful and faithful guide, uh, J.C. Ryle, writing for his congregation in rural Suffolk in the mid-19th century before he, oh, before he went on to become uh, the first bishop of Liverpool. So first, the opposition Jesus faced and the deep assurance we can have when people hate us. The opposition Jesus faced and the deep assurance we can have when people hate us. Verse 3. So Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. All of the Gospels record how broad and relentless the opposition was to Jesus, culminating in his arrest. And over the coming 12 hours or so, his abuse, his torture, and his unjust and cruel execution. But it is perhaps most prominent in John, who focuses particularly on the attitude of the leadership in Jerusalem. And he sets this out right from the very start of the Gospel. Words uh, we will hear read again at Christmas, John 1. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And Jesus also teaches that we, if we follow him, should expect no less. I think uh, uh, often people kind of looking on or considering Christianity assume that if you become a follower of Jesus, life will become easier and better. Now, in many wonderful ways, it does. But in some ways, it becomes harder when we are identified with Jesus. I think another shock that can, uh, can come to us, and still comes uh, to me, is uh, we know, at least uh, by God's help, we are seeking to be loving and helpful and kind to people around us. And we just assume that this ought to be kind of understood and welcomed. Well, Jesus was perfectly loving, helpful and kind. And how did people respond to him? At John 15, we looked at it a, a few weeks ago, he speaks of himself as the true vine. Jesus sets out the pattern we can expect. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 
they hated me without reason. And as well as endless verbal attacks and accusations, there have been numerous previous attempts to arrest and kill Jesus. If we were to turn back to John chapter 7, verse 25, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? <laughs> Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? Verse 30, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Right from the beginning, people are trying to kill him. A little later in uh, John 7, when the Pharisees heard the crowd arguing about Jesus, they got together with the chief priests and sent some temple police to arrest him. But if you read the account, their mission failed. We don't discover why until the end of the chapter when the temple police returned to the chief priests and Pharisees, they were asked, why didn't you bring Jesus here? They answered, no one has ever spoken like this man. They were just overawed. Chapter 8, end of chapter 8, the people picked up stones to kill Jesus. But he hid and left the temple. Chapter 10, verse 39, again they tried to seize him but he escaped their grasp. Chapter 11, verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Broad and relentless persecution. And it impacted on his followers too, with intimidation and fears of exclusion. Again, well over a year, perhaps a couple of years, before our uh, chapter this morning, John chapter 9, the parents of the man born blind who Jesus healed, John chapter 9, the parents were afraid of the Jews. That means the Jewish leadership. Why? For the Jews had already determined that anyone who confessed Jesus as the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. They would be excluded with all the sort of social provision that the synagogue would provide. John chapter 12. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear. They would be put out of the synagogue. It is a sombre truth, brothers and sisters. But Ryle says, rightly, it should also be an encouragement. I quote, Faultless as Jesus was in everything, in temper, word and deed, unwearied as he was in works of kindness, always going about doing good, never was anyone so hated as Jesus was to the last day of his earthly ministry. Scribes and high priests, Pharisees and Sadducees, Jews and Gentiles united in pouring contempt on him and opposing him and never rested until he was put to death. Surely this simple fact alone should sustain our spirits 
and prevent our being cast down by the hatred of man. Let us consider that we are only walking in our master's footsteps and sharing our master's portion. Do we deserve to be better treated? Are we better than he? Let us fight against these murmuring thoughts. Let us drink quietly the cup which our Father gives us. Above all, let us often call to mind the saying, Remember the word that I spoke unto you, the servant is not greater than his master. Most of us have lived for a number of decades in which the Christian faith and Christians by and large have been considered a force for good in our society. In the last decade or so that has begun to change. We are returning more to the situation of the Gospels and the first century where we are considered a force for bad. But we are just walking in Jesus' footsteps. Second, the control Jesus had and the deep assurance we can have that he has died for us. Back to our passage, verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Now, just to pause for a moment, why didn't they recognise Jesus? Why didn't they recognise him? So Jesus steps out. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. So they don't... Well, was it because it was night time? I think unlikely. They've come with torches and lanterns. And you may know the Passover always falls around the full moon, so we're probably not in pitch darkness here. It's before Judas has signified with a kiss who Jesus is. And uh, many of the soldiers uh, would have been foreigners, which is probably why they needed uh, that sign. But I wonder if the reason they don't recognise him is they are expecting to find a fugitive who is hiding. And what does Jesus do? He steps out. He is so bold. He comes forward and with complete authority, first of all, I am he. And that's the first of our I ams. Exactly the same words in the Greek, ego, amy, theme of our series. And then verse 6, this incredible reaction. I said it's, all, it's like a superhero movie. You may just have glimpsed uh, a, a, an artwork from the 19th century that tries to picture this. Uh, verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's like a kind of blast. A bomb has gone off. So here they are, professional soldiers, collapsing like a pack of cards 
before a single unarmed man. Why? Why? Was it a sudden loss of confidence? Jesus is very well known. They might not recognise him, but he's very well known. He was known as someone who had supernatural power. And perhaps their kind of superstitious fears took over. I think more likely that as Jesus uses this divine name, the sheer impactful presence of God himself knocks them flat. Let me remind you about some others who met Jesus and fell down. Saul, who became the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, he shares his testimony three times in Acts. Here's the first, Acts 9. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, I am Jesus. The Apostle John in Revelation 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But believers like John fall forwards on their faces, prostrating in humility before the glory of Jesus. Here they fall backwards. And I think there are hints that they do so because they are his enemies. Listen to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. I think here in John 18, uh, verse 6, we see the awesome greatness of Jesus. And of course, one day everyone will see the awesome greatness of Jesus. Unbelievers as well as believers. Philippians 2, every knee will bow, whether in joy or fear. We might say whether face forward in worship or face backwards in judgment. But this also, I think, confirms a most precious truth. That Jesus' death was not an accident or in any way against his will, but is entirely voluntary and chosen. He's prophesied this. John chapter 10. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He could have walked out of the garden untouched. Which means he has freely chosen to stay and die. As he says in Matthew 26, Do you think I cannot call on my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. You've got one, I've got 12. But how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? What a precious truth this is. 
And all the more when we recall who Jesus dies for in our passage in John 18. Look who Jesus dies for here. For those who misunderstand badly, like Peter, who goes around wielding a sword as if Jesus is leading a rebellion. For those who are fearful, who flee and disown him. In other words, he chooses to stay and die for people like you and me. Here's Ryle again. But here, as in all his earthly ministry, Jesus was a willing sufferer. He had set his heart on accomplishing our redemption. He loved us and gave himself for us cheerfully, willingly, gladly, in order to make atonement for our sins. It was the joy set before him which made him endure the cross and despise the shame and yield himself up without reluctance into the hands of his enemies. Let this thought abide in our hearts and refresh our souls. We have a Saviour who was far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. Christ is just as willing to receive and pardon as he was willing to be taken prisoner, to bleed and to die. The opposition Jesus faced and the deep assurance we can have when people hate us. The control Jesus had and the deep assurance we can have that he has died for us. Finally, briefly, the compassion Jesus showed. And the deep assurance we can have that he will protect us. Verse 7. Again, Jesus asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Here's the third I am in the passage, the last in the gospel. How does Jesus use his divine authority? He uses it to guard and protect his disciples. Without Jesus' intervention at this point, I think almost certainly the disciples would have been rounded up. They would have received the same brutal, terminal treatment as Jesus and I suspect they would all have fallen away. Jesus knows how little they can bear at this stage. So like the good shepherd he is, he ensures their protection. He ensures their release from a trial that at this point they cannot bear. Perhaps this was an answer to the prayer he had taught them to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A last word to Ryle. We should notice in these verses our Lord's tender care for his disciples' safety. Even at this critical moment, 
when his own unspeakable sufferings were about to begin, he did not forget the little band of believers who stood around him. He remembered their weakness. He mercifully makes for them a way of escape. We need not hesitate to see in this incident an instructive type of all our Saviour's dealings with his people even at this day. He watches tenderly over every one of his children and like a wise physician measures out the right quantity of their trials with unerring skill. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of his hand. Forever let us lean our souls on this precious truth. In the darkest hour, the eye of the Lord Jesus is upon us, and our final safety is sure. Asked at the beginning how we'd react if Jesus walked in. I think I asked that question a few weeks ago as well. If King Charles came in, I take it we'd probably rise to our feet. If King Jesus, the King of Kings, comes in, we will fall. Those of us that are his, we will fall on our face in thanksgiving and adoration. Those who are not his will fall back in fear. But what a precious passage. What precious truths these are. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. May we know you more clearly. Love you more dearly. And follow you more nearly. Day by day. Amen.